You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, this is Glenn Lowry, the Glenn Show, bloggingheads.tv and uh, patreon.com forward slash Glenn Show. Thanks for your attention. Uh, Just want to make a brief announcement here about the question and answer uh, process that John McWhorter and I are engaging in here uh, at the Glenn Show. Once a month, we uh, gather uh, the questions that patrons have submitted and uh, offer our responses to them. Um, and we're going to be doing that again here um, in the month of March um, on uh, Monday of next week, uh, the 15th. Uh, and want to encourage you to, uh, if you are a patron at the $10 tier, uh, look at the top of the posts and see where you can submit a question. Uh, If you're a patron at the $5 tier, uh, we welcome you to enjoy the responses that John and I will offer to these questions, uh, and our responses will go up uh, shortly um, after we record them on Monday of next week. So uh, $10 tier patrons, we encourage you to submit your questions. Uh, the answers, the responses will be accessible to 5 and $10 tier supporters of our show. Thanks very much. Hey, Daniel, how you doing? Hi, Glenn. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back. I'm so glad. I'm grateful to you. This is Glenn Lowry at the Glenn Show, bloggingheads.tv and patreon.com forward slash Glenn Show. Uh, Glenn Lowry and I'm with Daniel Besner, who's uh, he teaches at uh, the Henry Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington. And uh, those who follow the Glenn Show know that Daniel has uh, uh, appeared here uh, in the past. In fact, on three separate occasions in the past, uh, engaging in a discussions with me of about me, uh, about my intellectual origins. And uh, he's an intellectual historian, Daniel is. Uh, and parts one, two, and three are uh, in the archive. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is part four. I expect we conclude the series here. Born in Chicago, educated at Northwestern University, trained at MIT, a Reagan conservative at one point in time, then a very broke with the right kind of uh, disgruntled guy. Uh, and we're at part four, so I'm going to turn it over to Daniel. Thanks. Sure. Oh, yeah. No, of course, Glenn. Uh, it's been a real pleasure, uh, a, a, a real um, highlight of my uh, intellectual career so far, honestly. Um, so uh, basically, last time we got up to, uh, to 2012, and so we're entering what I would say is the more recent period of, of Glenn Lowry's intellectual development, the period that has actually been chronicled on Blogging Heads itself, uh, which I'm hoping someday will actually, someone will make transcripts of these conversations and deposit them in some sort of archive, because they're really useful historical material. But the, the first thing that I want to talk with and sort of talk about your um, response to these things, but what I want to try to do is do it in sort of your larger intellectual framework, because, um, you know, people might have heard what you think of BLM or wokeness, but I would, what I'm trying to do here is have you reflect on on how these recent turns might fit into your larger intellectual trajectory, um, given what we've talked about in the past. So I was thinking that we would start in 2014 and the rise of Black Lives Matter, which is a movement that you've criticized, I think, pretty significantly on this 
podcast. But what I would like to do is have you reflect on what was your initial response to the first BLM protests? In particular, how do you place them within your larger understanding of Black American history, in particular, your own encounter with the Black community, trying to reflect on why you've adopted quite a critical stance uh, toward BLM and what you see, where you see the movement going wrong and, and how your history informs your understanding of Black Lives Matter. God, you put Black Lives Matter right at the center of it. If I had known that, I might have canceled the interview. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Such a big panoramic question. I should have come to expect that from you, Daniel, but I and I know there'll be iterations here, so we'll have a time. I mean, you can't just answer in one gulp to something like that. Of course not. I, I want to start anecdotally, which uh, I think is can also be very powerful. And thank you for those kind words about the value of what we've been doing here at the Glenn Show. I mean, I, I'm very honored to have you say that because you're a serious uh, scholar, et cetera. Uh, but enough. Uh, <laughs> I, I have a friend. His name is Christopher Lydon, L-Y-D-O-N, and he's a radio guy and a, a podcast guy uh, who talks about ideas and culture and stuff. He was based in Boston. I assume he's still in Boston. I've known him for a long time, since uh, the early 80s. Um, and he did a, a PBS show for a long time, a radio show, uh, where he would interview people. Um, and uh, he's a very decent guy, very thoughtful guy. Um, you know, he belonged to a black uh, Baptist church, uh, 12 Baptists in Boston. Uh, back in the day when I was a Christian, you know, we would commiserate around some of those issues as well as around the intellectual scene. A liberal Democrat for sure, but thoughtful. Oh, but, <laughs> but, but you see, <laughs> thoughtful. And I can remember, uh, I'm not sure exactly what the year is. I, I want to say it's right after Trayvon Martin, because that's when I think things really get going. I think it's 2012 or something like that. Um, and uh, he's all excited. He's so excited about this phenomenon, about this movement. And he had a show uh, where he asked me to come and participate in the studio, which I did do, and there was a very uh, fine young scholar, African-American uh, from Tufts University, a historian, who was also a part of the show. And there were callers, and we did the show. And they were all excited. This is a movement. This is a movement. And gosh, but I wasn't feeling it. I wasn't feeling it as this revolutionary thing. Okay, so these queer Black women I mean, this, is, this was the, the tone of the talk, have, have launched something, and this is a new generation. But it's a civil rights movement. It's going right after oppression, and I didn't really feel it on both sides. Neither did I feel that uh, as horrible as what happened to young Trayvon Martin in Sanford, Florida. He lost his life. Um. And that's a whole rabbit hole that I don't want to go down right now. What actually happened to Trayvon Martin? Uh, George Zimmerman was acquitted, blah, blah, blah. You know, we could spend a whole thing talking about that. I'll bracket that. I certainly did not have any perspective on what had happened to Trayvon Martin at the time. I just 
took it as given that he was gunned down by George Zimmerman in some kind of inappropriate way. And I, I just want to bracket that. I still wasn't feeling it. I, I wasn't feeling movement at all. So on that side, the offense, the nature of the offense, black men being gunned down, I was skeptical about that as something to, that you would put on a par with, with what I actually experienced as a young person in the 1950s and especially in the 1960s of uh, a movement. So now a movement was being started and there's something ephemeral, something insubstantial about it, something faddish, so, so, something a little bit of a mass kind of uh, mentality that, that I was skeptical about. I, I didn't necessarily see the movement. I cringe when Obama said, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. When, when Obama uh, was managing and navigating the very difficult, uh, uh, you know, problem of how to lead the country and speak for the country at this moment of crisis, um, I, I, I cringed a little bit because I wasn't, I wasn't quite buying the narrative. The narrative was that we're at a latter day moment of racial domination, which is finally being called to account by a, a mobilization from the bottom of the people's voice. And I didn't buy that. Uh, so I'm in the studio there with Chris and uh, with the young scholar, whose name I don't recall, unfortunately, from Tufts, who's a fine uh, historian. And um, um, I, I'm, I'm, and, and they're all effervescent. They're all, they're all, you know, we're present at the creation is kind of what the feeling was. And, and, and I, I, I just, uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't buying it. And, and maybe it's an echo of what happened in 2008 with the rise of Barack Hussein Obama, where there was, and Chris and I had a thing about that too, as it happens. Maybe that's the reason I'm remembering it in this way. Because these are the feelings that I was having as I was moving away from, away from the left, away from a sense of defining myself in terms of, you know, opposition to racism, to, you know, because I was into the incarceration issue and, and I had very, and I wrote and I spoke about that, but I don't want to lose the train of my thought. I'm talking about Chris Lightning and I'm talking about that moment in that studio with, with, with uh, the Trayvon Martin incident and the birth of Black Lives Matter. And I was remembering back to 2008, you know, our, our time had come. We are the ones that we've been waiting for, uh, hope and change. Uh, and there was all of that Obama mania, which I thought a little bit skeptical about, although eventually I got on, I got on the, the bandwagon for Obama. But it was, it was a kind of politics I, I wasn't sure that it was touching the ground. Uh, so so I, I say on both sides. So neither did I feel the sense of the, uh, you know, kind of profound political galvanization that people asserted was true. I didn't feel it. Neither was I attracted by the movement. I wasn't particularly attracted by the movement. Um, and I, I don't think there's any way that I can say that that's going to be prettier, that's going to be nice. Um, 
You know, I, I worry that I'll sound, you know, so uh, culturally retrograde when I say that the the constellation of forces. Now, I'm not just talking about sex. I know that's what people think I'm talking about. They think I'm talking about sexual identity. That's part of it. I'm not going to. I'm not going to deny that. That's part of it. Um, they are against capitalism. Okay, I, we we had a long conversation about that. Okay, they don't particularly love America. I know that you and I, Daniel, don't necessarily agree on all the particulars of nationalism and whatnot, but I'm just telling you how I received them, how I received them. There's a generational thing. I'm in my 70s. What do you want me to do? These are kids. It's not those kids if you want to get me, you know, in an unguarded moment. Um, so I... I it's like, this is not your daddy's civil rights movement. That was spoken uh, during some of the, because uh, there's this uh, documentary film about Michael Brown that the Steel, Shelby and Eli Steele have made. They have, a, they have a lot of film in there. And, and, and one of the scenes is a young fella who is outraged about the Michael Brown situation, speaking to an audience. This is not... In other words, don't expect decorum from us. Don't expect reverence from us. Don't expect solemnity from us. Don't expect any kind of religiosity from us. There isn't going to be any kumbaya here. We'll burn this motherfucker down if we need to. That was the spirit. It was not an appeal to any transcendent, cooperative national enterprise. It was juxtaposed, excuse me, it was specifically juxtaposed to your country, your statues, your uh, canon, your narrative. It took black people out of, they're against the nuclear family. Of course, they've cleansed the website now. So it's only the Sean Hannity's and the Tucker Carlson's who will tell us that Black Lives Matter initially had uh, you know, uh, kind of what are our principles up there, among which were we against the nuclear family. It's full of all kind of what I think of in my 70s as postmodern uh, 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 nostrums and, you know, cliches, really. I mean... The, the 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 critical race theoretic the intersectionality kind of taught you know that so I just was not I was not feeling it they weren't attractive to me they didn't represent what I wanted to affirm uh, and uh, I didn't see the moment as one of uh, the kind of uh, you know. We need a movement to protect black people from the cops. I think that's absurd. I mean, we could go into that, but I. Anyway, uh, no, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm rambling on. I'm rambling on. I, I apologize. 
No, not at all. So there's an effectual dimension, which is just a generation gap in some, in some sense, literally the clothing and the, and the style of rhetoric. Um, there sounds like you think there's a, there's an empirical problem as well that that the claims didn't reflect empirical um, empirical reality in some sense. Am I getting that correct? Well, that is correct. I I don't think the claims reflect empirical reality. I, I think they're sensationalized and opportuni- opportunistically seized upon. Um, that's why I say movement, really, uh, a movement against police brutality. Come on, give me a break. Uh, that's what I think, really. I mean, a country of 300 million people, a handful of incidents. I'm not saying there's nothing, nothing, nothing to talk about, but I'm saying, really, Michael Brown is Emmett Till? The, the, you're not serious. That's not, neither is that history, nor is it politics. And then another thing that I'm that I'm hearing, and I might want to dig down on this one a bit more, is that it seemed like um, offense might not be the right word, but you, what you found a bit distasteful was the rejection of what I would refer to as a historian of the Cold War liberal project to present the United States as some sort of melting pot that transcends ethnic identity, transcends racial, gender, sexual identity, so that everyone becomes um, an American. Is that also correct? That that that, that, that that was not that was not what I had in mind as I spoke, but it is correct. Right. I mean, I, I only touched on that briefly when I said they don't love America or whatever words I said. Uh, and I definitely uh, chafe at the uh, alienation from the national project which I take to be a defining characteristic uh, of, of the movement. Uh, it, you know, so uh, that, that's not just a straight ahead narrative about Kumbaya, we're going to all melt together and get along. I think that's a very complicated set of issues about identity assimilation uh, and whatnot. Uh, but, but yes, I'm much friendlier to the racially transcending, seeing African-American as not an indigestible kind of, uh, more, more like an ethnic group that the meaning of the blackness as a distinctive characteristic is malleable and it can evolve over time. Uh, and, uh, you know, Obviously, it's there's that's a big, big subject, and you, we could talk about it. I'm not giving it justice at all here. So, just a quick comment that I want to make. It's interesting because I think you have a very complex relationship with what might be termed Afro pessimism. Because in an earlier conversation, you said that like there was something right about Malcolm X that no one's going to help you, and you've got to do it yourself. But at the same time, right now, you're saying that that. Afro-pessimism is unwarranted when we're talking about sort of this racially transcendent image utopia of the United States. No, I, I think you put your finger on something that's very profound. I, I, I really do. Uh, it, it, as, as it happens, it's come up in my own uh, public intellectual practice recently because I've developed a relationship with Robert Woodson's uh, Woodson Center in uh in Washington uh, and 1776 Unites, which is a project that they've launched. <clears throat> and I could talk all about that a lot, but the main thing that I want to get across is it's black empowerment. It's, 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 it's a kind of self-help in the spirit of Booker T. Washington, which presupposes 
a kind of substantiality to race and racial identity, black community. Now, uh, Woodson is not only blacks. I mean, he, he has relationships and he works with community organizations across the color line. But the, the history, animus, and spirit of it is very much a black empowerment, not uh, Malcolm X, uh, Nation of Islam, but Booker T. Washington-esque. And as I, and I sit on the kind of council of, uh, you know, uh, giving advice to Bob about the, uh, the thing that he's doing. And, and I put my finger on this very thing that you're talking about, which is that on the one hand, we want to, we want to affirm a kind of colorblind philosophy. I'm not saying that in a stick figured way. I'm not, I'm not being simple minded about it, but I'm saying about, you know, we want to look beyond race. We want to, we want to talk about the American people and not just about black. We don't want to pit the groups against each other, et cetera. On the other hand, we're rooted in race. Right. <clears throat> we, we are a racial uh, phenomenon. Our identities are why we're here. You know, we want to uplift our people. So when we use that first person plural, that's an ambiguous antecedent. Our people refers to multiple collectivities. And it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult problem. And I'm not sure that I have my hands on it, really. I think that I may be in danger of getting into a kind of contradiction, with an internal contradiction in my own political practice. Uh, because uh, I am at some level, you call it Afro pessimism. I want to say, I want to say, uh, I'm, I'm seizing the existential imperative of self determination. That doesn't necessarily make me pessimistic. Um, on the other hand, you know, whatever it is, if it's Colin Kaepernick, uh, what I want to say is, man, don't use the national anthem as the place to express your your disaffection, because we need all the people. You know, I'm, I'm not against Colin. I, you know, if he wants to protest, he can protest. What I'm against is pitting this symbol of the country against the aspiration for African-Americans not to be killed by police. That, I think, is a mistake, or at least it's not a way that I want to go. So, um, you know, I, I want to frame the police brutality problem in a generic way. I don't want to racialize it uh, in part because I don't want to racialize the discussion of crime and punishment more broadly, since that's got two sides to it. That's a difficult conversation. If you want to go down the road of racializing, you know, who gets, who gets violated, who gets offended against in this country, who does the offending. I'm not sure we want to keep a racial tabulation on that kind of uh, thing. You, you, you can't necessarily, confine it just to talking about the, how police interact with unarmed citizens. But in any case, the, the point I'm making is that on the one hand, I do want to uh, em embrace a kind of black agency informed by our history and culture, our history and culture being a reference to African-American experience. But I also want to place the social problematic within a framework of a, a kind of nationalist sensibility 
It's the American project. In other words, there is no world court at which the claims of African-Americans are going to be resolved. It's not going to be the United Nations that does it. It's going to be the American polity, the American political, organic political mechanism. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I think that it, it, we could go into reparations, for example, but I have a very similar concern. It's the commodification of African America's claims within the larger American framework that I worry about the transactional nature of, of formal reparation acknowledgement. Uh, I'm not just talking about a, uh, uh, stipulation that uh, an act of Congress might make. I'm talking about hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars of federal uh, money programmatically administered, institutionally structured in the country. This is Social Security magnitude public agency on behalf of a racial project. I think that's a deep, deep, deep mistake uh, for the country. And for quote unquote my people, meaning black people, and we could go into that. But the but the point I'm trying to draw on now, I think I've probably made my point, which is that on the one hand, I want black people to rise up and seize responsibility for our lives. On the other hand, I don't want black people to set ourselves off apart from the rest of the American polity and uh, build our politics around that kind of oppositional uh, framing. And that's a, that's a subtle, I'm not sure it's contradictory, but I'm not sure it's not. It, it's interesting. It reminds me a lot of Clarence Thomas's philosophy, which I think emerges from the exact same place in, in a sense. I just have a quick question then about strategy, um, because in some level, this is a question of strategy. I think you, you and BLM protesters might share similar goals. Please don't shoot black people or please don't shoot anyone, uh, as the case may be. But um, so, but in, in the United States, just as our system is organized, as the founders would say, the capital I interests, i.e. organized lobbying groups, highly motivated, small, determined, and, and well-defined groups often have a better sense or a better ability to make policy chains and people, uh, policy chains and people to, uh, pointing towards, you know, uh, utopian isn't the right word, but some sort of colorblind world. So how do you, how do you th address that question of strategy? Because isn't it just the nature of the American political system that groups need to mobilize and identify in a particular way and then promote their interests by defining themselves as a unique group with its own interests? Uh, yeah. I mean, you're reminding me of my, my friend Stephen Tellis, the political scientist who, who talks this way, but I'm sure any good political scientist would be talking this way. I mean, if I complain about the Democratic Party's uh, policies uh, on this or that issue, not necessarily reflecting the interests of African-Americans, and yet African-Americans are loyal constituents of the party, I will be reminded by, if not Steve, then somebody else that it's a party after all, it's a coalition and there's a lot of log rolling that's going on in internal, uh, you know, and if you want the movement to succeed, in this case, the progressive political movement embodied in the Democratic Party, you hold your nose or bite your tongue or whatever, and you, you allow for various kinds of uh, accommodations to be made. It's, it's, you can't expect them to hit right on, 100% solidly on what it is that you would like them to do. Uh, that's one kind of observation about uh, strategy. 
Um, but yeah. Uh, well, think about the Jews in a- and APAC and the Jews in Israel, right? I mean, they've joined with Christian evangelicals, but that's, or I mean, going back to the late 19th century, uh, ethnic groups have always organized to promote ethnic interests. Now, African-Americans, I think, occupy a unique place in U.S. history, and it's not quite the same thing as saying Jewish immigrants from but Eastern my Europe. Question, my question is, are they, I mean, maybe the battlefield on which I want to die here is, are they African-American interests? Mm. Well, if you don't uh, think... Because, that, because they could well be something completely different. They could be the interest of a certain class and a certain sensibility that seizes on the opportunity afforded here. I'm not going to go into a George Soros conspiracy argument right now, but even by telling you that I'm not going to go there, you get the idea of what I'm talking about. Um, and I, I just interviewed Michael Fortner, a political scientist at the City University of New York, who writes a book, his book, The Silent Black Majority, uh, is an interesting book about uh, local community attitudes toward crime and victimization and drug trafficking and how it is that grassroots African-American ministers and uh, politicians, community leaders actually got behind the Rockefeller drug law enactment in the state of New York, uh, going back to the war on drugs, even before Ronald Reagan, and were very punitive in their desire to see drug trafficking extirpated and whatnot, and that that voice within the Black community was interesting. It wasn't a one-dimensional voice. Of course they sympathized with a lot of the young kids who were getting rousted by the cops. They were their kids. Uh, you know, uh, they, they didn't like police brutality any more than anybody else liked it. But they also knew that, you know, if there's open-air drug trafficking going on on the corner, that's, that, that's bad for the kids. And and And... They knew that while the cops might be SOBs, you sure hope they show up when you need them, kind of thing like that. So that was, you know, the quote-unquote black community's interest. But if you had asked a political activist on the, you know, radical left what their interests were, they would have said something different. So, so... um, I, I don't know whether or not, for example, the movement to get reform DAs elected at the local level who will decarcerate, who will stop arresting or charging for minor uh, property offenses, who will urge the uh granting of no bail or or low cash bail so that people would not be detained prior to uh, trial. Um, There's the, the argument for it, of course, is mass incarceration and the racialized character of mass incarceration. The argument against it might be carjackings and homicides going up in, in, in my, uh, in my community. Um, and I, I don't, I don't know that there is a, uh, one answer to, to the question of what are the interests of the black community. And, and therefore I, I, I don't necessarily feel that, uh, what Black Lives Matter are doing, um, 
are rightly understood advancing the interests of the African-American community. And I suppose if I thought that they were, I, I would uh, be, I would look more kindly upon them. Right. No, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And of course the answer is just Marxism. So we've actually got that one in total redistribution. Um, <laughs> okay. I'm going to just let that go. <laughs> maybe something that emerges from this, which is a bit more general and maybe a bit more uh, intellectual, but I think it's been very much in your wheelhouse recently, which is uh, a criticism of, of, of wokeness or so-called wokeness or woke discourse. Um, so this is of course something that everyone listening to this probably knows about has really exploded, particularly in elite academic circles in the last five, six years, even though there's been percolations of it for 50 years, if not longer emerging from the sixties, uh, particularly late 68. And I was just, um, like to hear what what do you find problematic or offensive about wokeness as sort of a way of approaching the world? Uh, what is this intellectual disposition that that doesn't work uh, doesn't work for you? Tell me what you mean by wokeness, just briefly. Sort of, I, I would say like racial justice discourse. You know, like uh, attributing everything to like a um, uh, an identitarian politics that you find uh, problematic. Probably that's the best way to do it. I think wokeness is often used to basically yeah. talk about politics. And so yeah. what, in academic yeah. circles, what, what do you find problematic about it? And it's related to questions of free speech. I think we, we, I would hope to talk about also cancel culture. Well, I, I don't know. There are a number. Yeah, it is related to free speech. Uh, and it is related to cancel culture. And, and those two things are, connected with each other, although they, they have an independent uh, aspect. Um, the identitarian, uh, you know, uh, we, we, you know, this is the age of identitarianism. I mean, you could almost call it, I mean, it's a, it's a major, you're the intellectual historian, but it does seem to me something uh, quite characteristic of our time. Um, and it, 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 I think it because it relates to sort of the neoliberal individualist terms. So in that larger political economic structure, the individual becomes a focus of politics. This was the conservative critique of the New Deal, but now it's transmogrified because in that language of individualism, this is the type of politics that it promotes ultimately. So it's not disconnected from the larger political economic structure, in my opinion. This is the ir irony, I think, of the conservative critique of identitarian politics is that this is what people were arguing in the 70s and the 80s. You need to organize politics more around the individual and less around the group. And this is ultimately an outcome of that. Not the only outcome, but an outcome of that. Okay, I'm going to try to answer. I'm thinking here, it's bad for the soul. I'll defend that. I'll say what I mean by that, and, and I'll defend that. It's bad for the soul. Uh, it threatens civilization, and I'll say what I mean. Uh, I'll say what I mean about that. Uh, bad for the soul. I am not my race. I, I'm not this. Um, uh, to have the historical accident of identity define me is spiritually, and, and I, this is not a scientific claim I'm making here, and people will uh, take strong issue with it, spiritually stultifying, it surrenders way too much. I mean, we are the authors of our, of, of, of our being, we are yet to be completed. 
there's so much to learn. There's so many places to go. There's so much to do. Of course, I'm a college professor, so I think of this in terms of kids coming in at 18 years old and they want to Afro studies and they want they want to be whatever they are. They want to be these things. And I'm saying, man, you haven't read a damn book yet. You haven't listened to an opera yet. You haven't seen uh, Kabuki theater yet. You you have, you know, you haven't done anything. I understand that you come packaged a certain way. I know that you have sexualities and ethnicities and religiosities, but for crying out loud, the the challenge here is to take these things, the external givens, which are the raw material, and to construct a life. And that project, that constructive project of starting somewhere and then being in the world is a universal human challenge. The reason that I can read Pasternak or Tolstoy or somebody and learn something about my life is because they are also facing that challenge. I mean, it, the, the narrowness, the solipsism, the, the, the uh, reductive kind of uh, sophomoric, um, it's too small. This is too small of a way to live. You are uh, missing it if you live like this. So it's bad for the soul. It endangers civilization. Um, they tell me that it's a dead white male and I shouldn't read the book. You know, it, it's, it's Plato and Aristotle and, you know, Aquinas and, uh, Augustine. Augustine. Thank you. Uh, that's exactly what I was. Yeah. But okay. In any case, you know, uh, or Maimonides, it could be Maimonides. Okay. Don't read the book. It's a bunch of dead white men. I, I don't see anybody in the book who looks like me. Now I've already done the soul part. That's a stupid thing to say. I don't see anybody in the book who looks like me. You don't even know what you look like. You look in the mirror and you think you know who you are. So I, I don't see anybody in the book who looks like me, but <laughs> they are threatening the integrity of these precious institutions. When you shut down somebody from speaking because they made the native descendants of the native population of the North American continent feel bad by what they had to say about Columbus. Uh, because they wanted to defend stop and frisk uh, as a way of managing crime in a city. Because they think that rape culture is an inaccurate characterization of gender dynamics uh, in a certain population, in a certain whatever. When you tell a scribbler who wants to examine as a scientific proposition, the genetic predeterminants, if any, of intellectual performance, and you don't let the lecture happen, When you assault 
the teaching of the classics of the Western tradition as oppressive colonialization. Etc. When you turn these places into propaganda mills, uh, when it all comes comes to be about virtue signaling and banner waving at the university, you, you're throwing away something here. So the iconoclasm on behalf of identity, and I'm not just talking about statues. I'm talking about books, the iconoclasm. I'm talking about ideas. I'm talking about disciplines. I'm talking about intellectual inheritance. How is it that we know what it is that we know about the origins of the universe? What what is the intellectual pedigree of human civilization's comprehension of the origins of the universe? What's the pedigree? What What foundation does it stand on? about the origins of the species. The demystification of the age of faith by the age of reason happened at a particular time and in a particular place. You want to smash that one too? The identitarians run amok, threaten to destroy the university. So that's why I think it's a bad way of living. And I think these people are dangerous. So I've got a couple of of quick responses. That was really interesting. I mean, I I agree with a lot of what you said, but of course the famous Marx quote, right? Men make their own history, but they not make it as they please, right? There still are structures. And and even if these things don't define you, one still enters history at a moment of, of accretions of various ideological and institutional uh, elements, which I also think is important to take I- I into account, even though I do agree with you ultimately about sort of this universalistic element to, to, to u- humans being in dynamic. But one thing that I really want to ask about is because I've been listening um, to you just frankly for years, and I think talking famously about the Ray Kelly shutdown at Brown years yeah. ago, all those things. So my question, I mean, I, I do empathize and sympathize with your point to a certain degree, but as a historian, oftentimes a lot of these taboos get worked out in messy ways, right? So what is a protest if not the expression of the democratic will of immediate, of, of, of admittedly students who don't, haven't read everything, who don't know anything, who are working their, their stuff out, but is that not a legitimate expression of the democratic will as a society begins to reshape various cultural norms and taboos over time? So like, how does one navigate the dialectic between universities as spaces of free inquiry, but universities are and never have been totally utopian spaces of free inquiry. Some things are allowed, some things are not allowed. And the expression of a democratic will in protest against particular ideas that particular constituencies view as illegitimate. Is it just that the, the authority, the administrative structure says, no, we decide, sorry, collection of people, you're wrong? Or is that collection of people need to be taken seriously because that is what democracy ultimately is. That is the will of the people expressing itself in a form of popular protest. Okay, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, my answer is going to be stark. The university is not a democracy. It really is a, a hierarchical uh, institution and uh, enterprise. Uh, and uh, that's what disciplines 
mean. I don't try to tell the physics department who they're going to give tenure to or what research is worth going on because they know better than I do, et cetera. And uh, it's the tail wagging the dog, intellectually speaking, if the demos is, is setting the curriculum. Uh, but that's too stark and it's impractical. So I don't want to see the normative claim for democracy, but I will see the pragmatic uh, uh, observation to the extent that it would be deeply unwise to ignore the uh, sentiments uh, that are being expressed through mobilization and protest, uh, because after all, the viability of the enterprise requires the cooperative engagement of all parties concerned. Um, that goes at many levels within a family. Parents are presumably the responsible agents, but you can't just tell the kid what to do. You, you have to kind of mold a, a relationship that allows for an influence. It'll be much more direct at the early stage of development, and it'll be much more cooperative and accommodating uh, as things go along. And a point will be reached where the parent's authority will be very, very different than what it had been. Uh, it's an analogy, but I mean something like that I, I, uh, in this case. Uh, that's about things like the curriculum or whatever. But but procedural things, like who gets on the faculty? Like uh, how is the work of the university conducted? Like what are what are the requirements of members and to participate in the enterprise, such as to acknowledge and respect the rights of others in the enterprise? Um, I, I, I think it's the responsibility of leadership to affirm those things and, and to stand by those things, um, again, wisely. So, so there can be good and bad leadership. There can be ham-handed leadership and there can be wise and, 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 and uh, subtle leadership. But still, the goal should be um, not responding to the demos because the will of the people that this is not a democracy this is a this is a uh structured hierarchy of uh knowledge production and inquiry and so on that uh has you know not everybody gets to put the book on the shelf in the library the 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 book is on the shelf in the library is curated not everybody gets to publish in the journal the editors of the journal are gatekeepers for a reason, et cetera. So then this is my question. How do you relate this to the fact that the university has essentially become such a space of consumption? I was looking at Penn the other day. Penn costs $80,000 a year. I mean, so I, I was just thinking, I would love to hear your reflections on like, you know, Harvard costs $4,000 in 1984, now costs eighty. So I, I, I just, I, to me, this is intention. If you treat students as customers, they're going to act like customers. And to me, this is part of a react, a, a, a fact that has delegitimized that hierarchical authority, author, a structure of authority, because the students, especially at very elite spaces, you know, I went to Columbia, you teach at Brown. These students are viewed as future donors. So I was wondering how you view that as informing the shape of the university as a large structure, because last time I think, you know, the adjunctification we talked about last time is part and parcel of this. So I'm just wondering from your, your seat at the university, how you take this enormous transformation, you know, 
good dining halls, great dorms, rock climbing walls, you know, parents weekend. You have parents emailing professors. So how does that relate to this whole thing? Because to me, they seem profoundly connected. And you can't have this sort of neoliberal university and not expect students to behave as their customers. You're going to like this because I'm teaching a course on free inquiry and uh, open expression. Uh, where we're reading the classics and uh, we read Plato and we read Milton and we read John Stuart Mill and we're in the 20th century now. And our last class was on Vaclav Havel's essay, The Power of the Powerless. So this is a very profound contribution to political literature in the 20th century. Everybody should read this. And I'm not going to try to summarize what's in this book. Okay. Except to say that he's describing the situation of the dissident in Soviet-dominated Central Europe. He's in Czechoslovakia. You know, Prague Spring came and it went. (laughs) Okay, the tanks remained. (laughs) And we're in the late 1970s. And what's going to culminate in 1989 is already afoot. You know, Lech Walesa in Poland, Solzhenitsyn in Russia. There are things that are happening. And uh, it's, it's breathtaking intellectually to look back on this moment. But anyway, I could go on about this for a long time. Here's what I'm trying to say. Uh, He describes the totalitarian totalism, the autototalitism, I think, or some kind of word like that that he uses, of everybody living within the lie, everybody knowing that the system is corrupt and bankrupt, but nobody wanting to speak out the emperor has no clothes. He describes that. And he analyzes it down to a T, man, the green grocer, you know, the green grocer. He analyzes it down to a T. Why does he put the sign in the window, workers of the world unite when he knows it's bullshit? And the lady who comes and buys her carrots and her tomatoes, she doesn't even look at the sign, you know, etc. Why everybody is cooperating in this fraud, in this, in this phony thing. It's a house of cards. It's an elaborate structure of mutual lying to each other. And we're afraid, we're all fearful, this fear all the way down. Okay. And it's because we're afraid, it's because we're concerned about self, it's because we are, we don't, we, somebody's gonna hurt us, somebody's gonna hurt us. When in fact, the human spirit cries out for truth. Okay. This is Havel. This is not me, this is Havel, but it's, you must read this book, people. Um, so he then says, you got to read the whole thing. You can't just read the part where he describes communism. You got to go to the part where he says, maybe we have become infected by the superficial, materialistic consumer values of the West. Maybe the difference between the East and the West is not as great as you think it is because we're all selling our souls. We sell our souls in order not to be bothered by the state police. They sell their souls in order to have a fancier car or a bigger house or whatever, whatever. And my students and I, you know, encountering this thing uh, and having just read Mill, you know, who's a utilitarian, you know, and here, here we get to this guy who's practically making a, uh, a kind of um, moral statement. I mean, he's saying, the worth of life is not to be calculated in terms of how good it makes you feel. It's to be calculated in terms of how true you are to your, to your being. You know, it's almost a religious argument that he's making. 
There's something within us that cries out for truth. And how dare we extirpate it? How dare we tamp it down just to live comfortably? So anyway, that's what I think about that. I mean, I think, in other words, I think you're right. <laughs> or you're, you're right to say that the, the, the logic of feel-good uh, consumerism and the logic of the market as institutions compete compete for the size of the pie and everybody and the logic of the administrators who run the institutions who have career concerns of their own and the logic of the kids who arrogate to themselves some presumption of elitism or whatnot because they got in, they got in, you know, I'm in and you're out, I'm in and you're out. And, and the pampered character, the whole experience, because nobody, I mean, <laughs> if I go on like this, I won't be able to teach my class tomorrow. They have so many assumptions. Nobody's supposed to get anything less than a B. And a B is bad. It's very bad. It's very bad. Yeah. Where do you get off? Where do you get off assuming that you can't just be average? You think everybody's an A student? Well, of course everybody's not an A student. And the more rarefied the the, uh, assembly, the more obvious it is that not everybody's an A student. Uh, so, uh, you know, or can I have another two days to write this paper or accommodations with respect? Okay. But, you know, gaming the system, there's just a lot of gaming the system that's going on, which I think betrays a kind of, uh, facile, uh, self aggrandizing, uh, it's the opposite of the intellectual uh, challenge. And so to conclude <laughs> that what has happened, and it certainly has happened, these places have become very different than they were a half century ago. Um, the the admin, uh, proliferation of these administra- uh, administrators for one or another or another aspect of student this or of student that. Uh, and as you say, a lot of money is going into building dormitories and swimming pools and you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I, you know, I'm sure there's an elaborate plan about what goes in the dining hall and and things of all this kind. And it's all catering to a certain kind of sensibility. And you're right about the parents' weekends and so forth. (laughs) It's a big deal. It's a big deal around here. And when I see the families walking, the prospective families proudly, you know, I mean, I don't want to, you know, make fun of anybody because after all, they do pay the bills around here. But their climbing acquisitiveness almost it oozes out of their pores. They want in so badly. You know, so the idea that that kind of, um, of uh, uh, utilitarian quest for uh, personal satisfaction and consumption might be corrupt indirectly and directly corrupting the intellectual enterprise. I find that to be quite plausible. Yeah, I, I just don't see from a practical level how universities can be spaces of consumption and then demand the type of authority that 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 you're implying that they have. That's a fundamental tension. And I think in America of 2021, the consumption is going to win. That's the larger culture that we exist in. And I just wanted to highlight that tension and sort of building off of that. Oh, wait a minute. Before you, before you do that, I want to reiterate what you just said. I, I think you said something that's really very important. 
I want the university to be an intellectual hierarchy in which the adults run the show because it's about ideas. They run it respectfully and with consideration, but they nevertheless run it. You're saying that battle is lost a long time ago when you decided to go commercial and the logic of your commercial move means that you surrendered the authority to be able to, to, to write the script. And if you're right, we're fucked. Yeah, and I would say, I mean, universities are just synecdoche of larger American culture. The turn to consumer capitalism in the 1960s is an enormous apocalyptic shift in how people relate to the state, you know, where the, your primary identity, I'd say in the United States of 2021, if we're being identitarian about it, your primary identity is consumer. Why, why are Amazon workers essential? Because they allow you to consume. I mean, I, and I think this is, this is something profoundly problematic about American culture that we haven't even begun to really address. Um, and I think I, you see it in the university. Is that the only point I wanted to, to get out? Okay. Um, and so building off of that, we have to talk about cancel culture. Um, particularly, what do you think cancel culture is? Uh, and what do you think the problem is? Because I would say um, this is a term that is so capacious that it refers to universities retaliating against political speech to, again, the demos protesting Ray Kelly. So I was just wondering what you or the, 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 the student demos. So what, what is your view of cancel culture and why do you think it's so problematic based on that view? What do you find so problematic? Well, it's not just the universities, of course. I mean, you know, people are losing their jobs or their platforms all over the place for, for running afoul of one thing or another, um, for offending, uh, for uh, giving someone cause to call them misogynistic or homophobic or uh, racist. Um, you know, this N-word thing that has uh, arisen in the news recently with one incident or another of someone using the word or defending the use of the word and getting canceled. Um, the Me Too uh, movement and the reprimand of people uh, for uh, uh, sexual transgressions uh, from the past that leaves them unfit then to be uh, the public face of, of this or that. Um, tweets, people retweeting, you retweeted something, you must be a QAnon uh, advocate or whatever. And then the person becomes, uh, you know, an inappropriate host of a TV show or uh, you say something in class. Uh, I have said this in my class. In the 21st century, African-Americans on the whole have failed to measure up to the challenge which was opened before them by the uh, liberalizations of, uh, associated with the civil rights movement and, and the uh, end of Jim Crow. I have said that. I could try to defend it here, but that would take us uh, uh, off the beaten path. My point is, a white professor can't say that. Literally, literally, a white professor cannot say in a classroom in America that black people have failed. If he does, he'll be a white supremacist and he'll be finished or she. And uh, you ask me, uh, what problem do I find with this? 
it's anti-intellectual in the extreme. It's, it's uh, witch huttery. It's, it's, uh, it's mob justice. It's mass hysteria in the extreme. Now, if there's a spectrum, there's going to be a range of cases that we could present. And yes, there does exist an offense so offensive that even I would cancel the offender. But saying the N-word is not one of them, frankly, certainly not in the context in which the Donald McNeil was dismissed uh, from the New York Times for what he did. And I, I don't want to get into the particulars of the anecdotes. I, I just want to say, you know, what am I defending the use of the N-word or whatever? It's it's uh, what what did you you're a Marxist. You, don't you all have a word for this kind of thing where it's like a trivial. What did Proton do that was wrong? What what the property is theft. Doesn't Marx have an essay where he refutes the triviality, the intellectual triviality of the claim property is theft or something like that? Something like that. It's it's petty. It's small think uh, morality. It's small think racial justice. It's it's uh etiquette. Now I I know Orwell has got something in politics in the English language or somewhere uh, about the thing that I'm talking about now. Uh which is that people are policing uh certain aspects of performative uh social presentation instead of making arguments, arguments about uh political economy, arguments about ethics and morality. Arguments about aesthetics, arguments about political theory. They're, they're not making arguments. They presuppose that the arguments have already been made and resolved in, the, in favor of whatever fluff fills their heads. And then they think they can go around and cut people's heads off because they don't affirm their nostrums. So... So I, I, you know, maybe at this level of abstraction, it's it's hard to, it's it's hard to say. But on the on the race thing, a person had a photograph from 1982 when they graduated from high school, in which they wore blackface. And now it comes out because somebody uh, looks at the yearbook and they decide that they're going to run an expose in the Washington Post about this person. I don't see how they survive it. You know, and I think it's like I say, petty. It's it's a small bore. It First of all. I know almost nothing about whether or not the person is actually a racist from the fact that I've stipulated whatever we mean by the person being a racist. What I mean is I know almost nothing about whether or not the person has values and beliefs uh, relevant to his current behavior that are indicative of some kind of racial antipathy uh, or malice uh, that should cause me to want that person not to serve in public. I don't know anything about it. Um, You're trying to have an argument with uh, lower middle class Alabama culture in nineteen in the early nineteen eighties. Yeah, they all voted for Ronald Reagan. Yeah, they all liked Jerry Falwell. Yeah, they were all mostly racists who thought that the civil rights movement was bullshit. A lot of them were. So the politics of twenty twenty 
becomes about whether or not somebody who had a black face on in 1982 can you don't see that that's true. I'm not you personally. Don't you guys see that that's a triviality? What it is, is it's a kind of power move. We get to flex our muscles because we control who can speak. So this is what I think is crucial. Um, and because you mentioned power, I think many, many, if not most people would agree on the excesses. But to me, cancel culture strikes as such a weapon of the weak, to quote James Scott, right? There are people who feel that there's not normal channels through which to affect decisions about basically the elite that controls society. And that's not incorrect. You know, we are a society that's been organized to give certain groups enormous amounts of power, totally disconnected from the democratic will. So cancel culture is this explosion of anger by people who don't have any other mechanism by which to express that anger, who don't even feel the need to engage in argument because they feel that they would lose the argument either initially or because that they won't be taken seriously. And it's another reflection, and I think a lot of the things that we've been talking about, of a delegitimation of American elite institutions and American elite culture. And I think it's that what to focus on. I, I mean, we could all rail against the excesses of cancel culture, but it's that there's a reason that these things are no longer legitimate. And that reason, and, and, and that's a rational response to the history of the past 30 years. Is that not? Uh, you, you are impressing me, Daniel, really, because these are things that I hadn't quite thought about. And I, it sounds to me like you've got your, your finger on something and it has really powerful implications because you're right. Even I could feel a little hollow sometimes complaining about cancel culture just to be complaining because, you know, uh, I, I don't really, I don't really know what I'm, you know, I'm, I, I am in a way being petulant myself. I mean, you know, it's an imposition upon me. I, you know, it, it's stupid, you know, but I don't have any analysis. And and you just offer something to think about, uh, and it it would mean if if you're right that even though you still might not want to let let them have their way if you can stop them, uh, you might think a little bit differently about it. And this is not a policy prescription. What do you do to empower people so that they needn't use uh, flailing out? petty means of, of uh, you know, uh, asserting themselves, a feeling that they have some control over the, over the political culture, when in fact, big money in politics or corporate uh, advertising or whatever is really running the show. Um, well, then they're going to, they're going to do these kind of things. They're going to, they're going to, uh, you know, set bonfires or, uh, leave the fire hydrant running and uh, flood the street or. Do you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of like Mexico in the 1960s, where the only way to attack one party rule is to basically do what were called denunciations, right? Which is the exact same thing as cancel culture, right? There's no space. There's no political mechanism. So the only thing you could do is basically explode in a paroxysm of anger. And it's not a surprise with a lot of the, particularly the elite media cancel culture Two weeks, three weeks later, you find out that, oh, actually, everyone hated this person and they weren't retiring or they weren't pushed out. And so this was the weapon that basically people use the powerful weapon of the moment 
to basically force something that they, through which they had no other mechanism, right? How many times have you heard someone who was canceled? And I, I agree, it's a real thing, and I agree there's lots of excesses, but very rarely do you, oh, that guy was actually a great guy who took everyone seriously and really responded to people's demands, and they interacted in a nice way, and oh, no, they made this one misstep and they were canceled. I can't think of one, and that, there's a reason for that, because this is basically a circumvention of a system that has collapsed, in my opinion, the system that is no longer viewed as legitimate. Does that make sense? Uh, it's something I want to think about. I don't know if I want to sign on entirely, but yeah, it certainly makes sense. Uh, you know, every vic- you- I, 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 what I'm not signing on to is that every victim of cancel culture is an asshole that uh, had it coming, which is kind of what you just said. No, that's not true. I think in particular elite spaces with people who wind up, who are like in elite jobs, that wind up getting pushed out, that's a lot of the things that are happening. But I think I, you mentioned Hirschman recently. You know, if you can't exit and you don't have loyalty, all you have is voice, you know? And cancel culture is a reflection, maybe not the ideal reflection, but it's an expression of voice, is it not? Well, it certainly is, and that that's certainly a way of looking at it. And uh, it, like I said, it gives me something to think about. <laughs> <laughs> So, because um. I, I mean, I agree with you. There's clear excesses, of course, of course. But to me, they reflect the social problem, and it's the social problem that, that some might say the base that's more interesting to me than the superstructural reflection of it, which is what I think cancel culture ultimately is. In the final analysis, <laughs> I, I want to know who these people are, and, and I want to know exactly. What's going on? I mean, there are many examples, but uh, some of these are, are very privileged people who are, are, you know, launching the crusades against. I mean, if I'm in a newsroom, if I'm in a newsroom and I've got a, a, a goodly number of, uh, you know, journalists of color who are part of the organization, but they're younger and uh, they, they don't have major positions of power in the organization. And I've got a 35 or 40 year veteran who's a kind of centrist Democrat, uh, uh, madman era, misogynist type. He didn't actually do anything, but he's, you know, he's, he's a certain type. And he doesn't like affirmative action. He's probably said something to somebody that made them think that he didn't respect them. Uh, he might even vote for Trump. God help us. We don't know. He lies and says he doesn't, but he just might. He could. We could see him doing it. Uh, that, that's a prototypic setting, it seems to me, in which if he says the N-word, we get him at the jugular. And it's true. The editors had his back. The, the publisher had his back. They were buddies. They drank together at the club. They came up in the same prep school. It's true. Uh, they don't know diddly about, I don't know what, graffiti artists or, uh, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter or uh, queer literature or whatever. They don't know anything about anything. Uh, and they, therefore, we are voiceless. That is, those of us who are in that young generation, who are of color, who are queer, who are uh, didn't go to the prep school. So now, once he's out there and exposed, we go for the jugular. 
your story would have me read that through your, you know, your your Marxian class analysis, you know, and it would be just a hierarchical situation. I see it, that little anecdote that I'm telling as symptomatic or emblematic of many of these situations, I see this much more complicated and much more interesting because it's not just who owns the means of production that determines who has the power. In fact, obviously, the people who have the ability to cancel have some kind of power, depending on the institution. You know, it, it can be uh, the, the students determining what's on the syllabus because, you know, they are post-colonial. And the guy that wants to put, you know, the memoirs of a British uh, Raj uh, administrator from the late 19th century, because it's interesting as a historical document on the reading list, hasn't got a leg to stand on. You know, I mean, anyway, anyway, basically, basically, yeah, I hear what you're saying, Daniel, and you're probably more right than wrong, but I don't want to completely concede the the kind of uh, class based, you know, kind of eco- economic class based analysis of, of the thing, because I think the cultural power is is more nuanced and subtle than that. Sure. Cultural power is, is a real thing. Absolutely. But I mean, the fact is millennials own like what, 2.1 percent of national wealth and boomers own like 23 percent of national wealth at the same age. There's a general uh, feeling of precarity. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's a stunning number. That's an unbelievable yeah. number. That might be um, it might not be two, it might be three, but it's something ridiculous. Wow. But you're saying boomers, when they were the same age as millennials are now, were on the upswing of the post-World War II bonanza. And I'm one of those people. And my 401k is looking pretty good right now. (laughs) My point is that it's a weapons of a weak, but uh, it's a weapons of the weak thing by a generation that has been one, I think really crucial, promised a lot growing up in the 90s and 2000s and didn't get it. And that is the perfect situation for these sorts of phenomena to emerge. I mean, it's the, it's the exact situation. So I just wanted to emphasize that. I think there's this serious thing happening that underlays a lot of these phenomena. Excuse me. I just have to look at my calendar to make sure that I, I didn't uh, double book. And I did not. I did not. Thank goodness. <laughs> no, no, no. Problem. <laughs> but I yeah. just think... I mean, I, it's interesting because I feel like the cancer culture discourse occurs totally at the level of discourse. And then there's like there's this fundamental change in how an entire generation relates to the political economy and the institutions of their country that is just never talked about. And wh- why is everyone all of a sudden so angry? <laughs> you know, it's that, like, that's pretty profound. Actually, I mean, uh, your contribution to the conversation we're having here, I think, deserves to be somehow pulled together and summarized uh as a as a nuanced uh, uh cultural uh, uh critically critical cultural analysis have you done that anywhere no no i haven't yet i, I oh, okay it's, well i encourage you i yeah no but i think it's really it's a it's a thing missing from this entire discourse that to me this is an enormous causal element of all this stuff okay so um i've got some more time if you do yeah, yeah, let's we could take a few more minutes. Uh I got a two o'clock that I need to prepare for. It's one it's almost one thirty now. Yeah, and I'm I'm actually presenting a paper at two, so I should probably have ten minutes of break. But one thing, okay, so I know you've declaimed your your Trumpian uh, you know, not support, but your 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 Trumpian <laughs> I'm wondering, 
Yeah. It's, it's a little, it's probably a bit hard now because there's been so much discourse, but what was your initial reflection to Trump? Now that he's become more historical, at least at the current moment, maybe he'll run in 2024, who knows? But what was your initial reflection to Trump? And particularly, how did you feel? Because I feel like that was maybe your final break with like centrist, the center left. Yeah. And how did you narrate that sort of final break? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I'm going to declare, I mean, I was never actually a Trump supporter, but I, I have been called a Trump apologist because I would see the other side and I would say things in defense of Trump. Uh, but that said, I think I should answer you straight. So you've heard of Brexit. I've heard of it. <laughs> there were the leave and there were the remain. Okay. <laughs> a lot of people uh, who really knew better, supported leave. I mean, knew better from the point of view of what's the long view here about European nationalism and whatnot, or knew better just from an even more practical point of view, what's the immediate economic and uh, financial, whatever, they, they kind of knew that leave was wrong, but they still, they still, okay. Uh, and I'm kind of like that guy here. I, I mean, you couldn't miss that uh, Trump was a um, was a hustler. You, you could you, you couldn't miss that he was a certain kind of P.T. Barnum. There was something, you know. Uh, and, and when people would make that argument to me, I mean, I could not refute the argument. On the other hand, on the other hand, for I think similar reasons to why many respectable Brits um, had more sympathy for leave than perhaps their wisdom would have allowed. Uh, he, was, he was poking the, the bear right where I wanted it poked. Uh, so for example, he says America first Europe needs to pay its own way. I'm tired of these countries free riding on us. Well, I'll be honest with you, and I'm not an expert. You are on international affairs of the study thereof. He's right but, about that. <laughs> but I thought he might be, okay? Yeah. I, I, I thought the, the post-World War II, you know, uh, Dulles Brothers uh, kind of, you know, imaginings about, or even Bush uh, father-son imaginings about what respectable Americans need to do on behalf of the world. The fuck? That's not the world of 1945. The Cold War has been over for a very long time. This is the world of the Chinese. Have you checked out what's going on? You know? So uh, they're so smug. They're so smug with their Ivy League degrees and their Council of Foreign Relations conferences. And I'm a member of the Council of Foreign Relations. I interned there. <laughs> but you, you get what I'm saying, okay? That's just one example. You and I may not agree about this. He says uh, you don't have a country if you don't have a border. Uh, let me just stipulate I'm not a racist. I, I'm, I'm not a racist. I'll say it again. The idea that as an American and as an African-American, I could take an interest in what the flows are into the population of which I'm a citizen and a resident on behalf of how I understand 
my own personal, my communal, and my national uh, best interest, and then adjudicate it. I mean, it doesn't mean no refugees. It doesn't. It just means I put the thing on the table and I try to figure out what I'm doing because I want to decide that. I don't want that to happen willy-nilly by forces out of my control. Now, that may be wrong, but it's not crazy and it's not racist. Uh, and there's just a lot of stuff like, I'm not even talking about the cultural stuff, about the you know political correctness and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, there were just a lot of things that were like that. I thought climate, here again, this is in some ways not dissimilar to the first point. I thought it's a hard problem, not an easy problem. Not that Trump understands the problem. Uh, that, you know, it's about burden sharing amongst nations and there's a kind of game that goes on about who's going to do what. It's about managing a technological slash political slash economic intergenerational long-term dynamic problem where there's a lot of uncertainty. There's uncertainty about future technology. There's just a lot that we don't know. I'm not a denier. I have to say I'm not a racist and I'm not a denier. I'm just saying it's a hard problem, okay? When I feel myself being stampeded into profound structural interventions on behalf of a, a sentiment which isn't grounded in an assessment. I know this is not Trump. This is Glenn Lowry. He's not smart enough to give the speech I'm giving right now. I stipulate that. But he seemed to be making more space for some kind of thing. And I'll say this, and I will get my head handed to me for it. Early in the days of COVID, when he was acting a buffoon and where in retrospect we can see he did grave damage to the country, I still felt something positive about the oppositional character to me being stampeded and and feeling that I was being stampeded by people who labored under a tyranny of metrics and under an illusion of control and who wanted to prescribe every detail of my life. So when when I felt some pushback against that, I say it with trepidation because I know in retrospect, he erred grievously with respect to the management of this problem. I do not dispute that in the least. I'm, you, you asked me what some of my feelings were, and I'm telling you the primary feeling was of the zeitgeist, whether it be about international relations or it be about climate or be about the border or be about whatever, trying to dictate to me from their posture of elite, know-it-all, arrogant, supercilious haughtiness, what was right in the world. And, and, and the fact that there was somebody who was saying something different from that uh, made me want to at least listen and uh, give a benefit of a doubt. The, 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 the black districts of the cities of the country are terrible places. They have been failed by many institutions, not just the Democrats who represent those uh, districts in Congress. There needed to be, he says, what do you have to lose? This is where I started. This is the point of Trump during the campaign of 2016 when he said, this is something I care very much about, African-American politics and uh, social economy. And he says, you know, uh, what do you have to lose? And I thought, I'm not voting for this uh, joker, but is he actually getting ready to effectively pose in American politics a question about the... Uh, 
rationality of African-American monolithic support for Democrats uh, and so forth. Is that going to, is a space going to open up here? Now, he did nothing with that. He put Ben Carson in charge of housing and urban development who went to sleep there. Uh, A couple of hundred billion dollars. Serious money, but also, as we know, in the era of COVID relief, not all that serious money if you really are determined to spend it. Aimed at a demonstration of a different kind of way of getting our hands around these issues. Now, he's not capable of pulling it off. I understand that. I understand that. I'm not saying he is. I'm just saying the, 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 the cast of mind that I was in was, is this an opportunity for something significant to happen uh, in this debate? And so that's why I gave him a lot more space in my head and a lot more leeway than uh, the next guy, because I, I really wanted things shaken up. Glenn, I have a question. Do you not do you see a relationship between you using Trump as sort of an end run around the politics about things that you felt you can't talk about and what's going on with cancel culture yeah. about an end run? You know, like it's, it's like Trump is a similar paroxysm of rage against a system that you don't feel responds or provides space for debate and discourse. Is it not the same thing? And, and the, what I'm really getting at is does this not reflect a broader cross political spectrum belief that the system is illegitimate. Different spaces, but there's a fundamental delegitimation going on right now. And that yours is Trump, and there's cancel culture, and there are end runs around the system, essentially a system that people view. And note well that these end runs are political dead ends. Well, I think they've they've proven to be. And and I can see why a system... I can see why how a systematic account such as a sophisticated Marxian framework would afford you could be an extremely attractive alternative to the political dead ends that are keeping butting our heads against the brick wall of of, uh, uh, illegitimate and dysfunctional and atrophied uh, institutions that mainly only serving the interest of the well-heeled and the and the well-connected. I, I can see why a, a systematic account of history might be very appealing, but to have myself likened to the cancel culture devotees, it hurts, Daniel, it hurts. <laughs> right, and I think there's a reason that socialism is back because the, 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 the structural analysis is a very powerful thing at this particular moment. And I want to add, it's not just political economy, it's also constitutions, you know, the Senate. You know, the founders did not think Wyoming would have 500,000 people and California would have 45 million. No, they I didn't. Mean, these are really, really problematic things. The founders did not predict that our country would essentially be a series of heavily populated uh, cities and very sparsely populated rural areas. No, they didn't. I agree. These are really fundamental structural issues, which is why I think structural analysis is back. Um, But what what I find disconcerting is that the well-heeled have just won again with Biden. And I don't think Biden's going to do anything. And I think we're going to be in a holding pattern in a very profoundly – consequential decade. And I'm very, very pessimistic about the future, personally. Well, I'm sorry to hear you say that, except for one reason. My lovely wife, Lawan, who was a Bernie Sanders uh, (laughs) supporter, will listen to this entire conversation just to hear your last sentence. 
(laughs) that corporate Democrat Biden is not the answer. He's part of the problem. And I was going to. Because she's been saying that for the last year. (laughs) I just wanted to end on that. What's your take on Biden? What's your take on sort of the ancient regime reasserting itself, beating Bernie, beating Trump, beating the sort of populist end run challengers? I'm just curious. What's your take on that? It is depressing, to be honest with you, and and I I am not hardened by it in the least. Uh, And what I've heard coming in areas that I'm concerned about out of the administration has not has not uh, made me happy. Um, And, you know, I'm I'm more conservative than you are. So it's not necessarily that we would agree on the same policies, but you're putting it that way. The Axion regime reasserting itself. That's exactly what has happened. I mean, we could go back to the presidency of Barack Obama. I'm on the record saying that he messed up when he didn't lock the bankers up or zero them out so that they, they left the table with no chips whatsoever. You know, even if it would have been bad policy, as I said, I think to you, it would have been very good politics and an opportunity was missed. Uh, you could say that. Uh, and, uh, I certainly don't think that uh, you're going to get anything. I mean, Biden is not exactly the most dynamic, visionary and inspiring person. With respect to the president, he's uh, up in years and he has never been a particularly dynamic or inspiring person. If you ask me what's his vision, I could tell you what Trump's vision is much more clearly than I could tell you what Biden's vision is. I just did. I just did. I ticked off four or five things. I mean, do that for Biden. I don't know what they are. The committee hasn't met yet to hand him the memo, you know? So uh, it's obviously a trans transitional situation. I don't know that Biden will run for reelection. I don't know that Kamala Harris will be a compelling leader of the country two or three or four years from now. So we're going to see what's going to happen. There's going to be a lot of jockeying for position. And after all, uh, the Republicans, have a problem of reconstituting themselves, I suppose. And I don't know what's going to happen to Donald Trump. Something tells me that he's not going away. So it's going to be, get the popcorn. Get, it's going to be very interesting to watch uh, the political developments of the next of the next couple of years. Yeah, the way that I think about it is that this is the first time in my lifetime that there's real, there's a, it's, there's a, it's a plastic moment in a real way. There's a bunch of different paths and this country could go in a different one, much more so than the end of the Cold War. So it's in some sense, we're, we're living in truly interesting times. Um, but I, I feel like we might go and in in, in choose the wrong path. <laughs> I think that's a good note to end on, Daniel. We are indeed living in truly interesting times. And for me, meeting you has been one interesting experience. I'm very grateful. Let's stay in touch. Absolutely, Glenn. It's, it's been a real genuine pleasure. I appreciate it so much.